In this episode, I interview David Koizis, who is a brilliant scholar. Uh, he thinks a ton about how our faith as Christians uh, shapes our view of uh government and our posture towards civic engagement. Uh, his book, Political Visions and Illusions, has been hugely helpful to me in understanding uh, like the difference between liberalism and democracy, socialism, words that are thrown around a ton. Uh, it's given me a deeper understanding of not only what those things are and how they've operated historically in the world, but also he spent some time in the book thinking through how scripture and the teaching and example of Jesus can help to shape and influence our view of civic engagement in America in the modern era. Uh, this is a long interview, so we've got it divided into two parts just to save you uh, from having to go through the whole hour. Uh, but we had a ton of fun, lots of great, helpful input from uh David Koizis, and I want to highly recommend his book, again, Political Visions and Illusions, available wherever books are sold. Without further ado, here is David Koizis. So David, so many of us are, uh, we're hearing these political phrases or, or words about government and politics, like democracy, liberalism, nationalism. Um, and for, I think most of us, we haven't really thought about this stuff since like our high school civics class. So you're like a thoughtful person and have studied up on these. So we thought maybe I you could so. help us uh, understand what these terms mean. And so one of the ones that gets, I think, really confusing for us is there's the word liberal, right. uh, but then there's also liberalism, which you write around, uh, about in your book. What What is liberalism? Well, liberalism is actually much broader than um, the way that it's used rhetorically, and um, especially in American um, political uh, uh, debates. You know, it's also used here in Canada, but I think it's probably uh, understood a little bit more broadly than it is in the States. Um, but the but, but liberalism, I would I would say that liberalism is the the notion that uh, that individuals are sovereign. Uh, individuals are sovereign. They are the ones that determine the course of their lives. They are the ones that collectively determine the course of their um, of their uh, uh, their their political uh, their their political regime. And uh, and and but but what it comes down to is that uh, is that it tends to level out uh, the sheer diversity of human communities that we uh, are embedded in in the course of our lives. So every uh, community uh, comes to be seen as a kind of voluntary association that is simply an association of, uh, of, of individuals who freely contract together to become part of that for their own self-chosen purposes. So you can go back centuries to people like Thomas Hobbes and John Locke, um, John Locke, of course, was was hugely influential on Thomas Jefferson as he was writing the Declaration of Independence back in 1776. As a matter of fact, from our own, um, I think, from our own standards, we might uh, accuse Thomas Jefferson of having plagiarized John Locke's <laughs> Second Treatise on Civil Government because it's so close to what what Locke said. There's a certain understanding that political community comes about because individuals have chosen. Uh, to to associate for political purposes. So the idea that there are certain communities that that are simply given to us, that we are um, that we are are um, that we find ourselves in various communities, uh, family, state, church, and so forth, and that they they exist beyond 
or apart from our 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 wills. That's something that would be completely um, um, it, it it wouldn't be understood by by the um, the, the 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 convinced liberal. And so, liberalism is this idea that you know maybe distinct from like I'm part of a kingdom or um, I'm a feudalism or something like that. It's this idea that, uh, that of liberty, maybe. Is that yeah. correct? That we that, get this idea of liberty? That's right, yeah. And it's a, it's a certain kind of liberty. It's, 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 it's individual liberty. You know, so you can talk about, um, about nations having liberty. You can talk about uh, a democratic system having, having liberty. But, in, but under liberalism, uh, liberty belongs to the individual. And so everything, you know, anything that, any obligation that, that we owe to some other person or some community to which we have not freely ascended, that is seen as being somehow objectionable in the, in the consistent liberal. Got it. Okay, that's helpful. So it's about me and my rights and my freedoms, everything exactly. centered around that idea. Yeah, exactly. That's yeah. right. So that's liberalism. And we also hear words like conservative or conservatism. What is that? Yeah, conservatism is, is um, it, it's not so much a uh, political ideology, although I do treat it as, as such in my, in my book. Um, the, um, it's, it's, in some ways, it's more of a mood. So it's, it's an attachment to tradition. But of course, traditions are going to widely vary um, from place to place and from time to time. So you know, the, the, right? Very often we find ourselves not not only in North America but elsewhere as well. Uh, we find conservatives battling with each other over who is a true conservative. But uh, but the, if you look at if you try to find conservative principles, you're going to have a lot of trouble finding them because they they exist in in multiple forms in in different places. So you know, you have fiscal conservatives that are largely concerned about about money. You have social conservatives that are mar- that are mostly con- uh, concerned about such um, uh, about about life issues and sexuality issues. Those would be social conservatives. You have now, more recently, so-called national conservatives uh, who who meet in various places, even in Belgium and the United States and England and various places, talking about about what it means to be a national conservative. Um, so conservatives are going to differ with each other, and there there's going to be different. Um, quite different substance in the conservative vision. And th- I think this is one of the reasons why conservatives um, have such a hard time against uh, fighting against liberals and, and socialists, because the content of the conservative vision is going to change so much, it's, it's like pulling teeth to get people to agree on what the content should be. And as a matter of fact, many people who call themselves conservative, especially in the United States, but increasingly in Canada as well, if you start to to question them very carefully as to their principles, it turns out that they adhere to what might be called liberal principles. So we've got this in in America, we've got these two sides, right? The progressive left and the conservative right. Yes. Okay. Uh, so conservatism is conserving something. That's right. And what I hear you saying is we are different in what it is we're trying to conserve. Exactly. That's right. And That's perhaps right. progressives maybe have a similar issue when it's like, well, what are we progressing towards? Exactly. That's right. And so we have all this infighting within both conservatism yeah. and 
progressivism. That's right. Yeah. Maybe let's tease that out for a minute. So you're in Canada. I'm in America. Yes, yes that's right. Uh, conservatism means something here or some yes. things here. How might it be different in Canada than America from your perspective? Yeah. Well, historically speaking, uh, conservatives were uh, wanted to uphold the monarchy. You know, Canada is a constitutional monarchy. We have a king, King Charles III. Uh, you know, he, he appears or he will be appearing on our coins. Uh, I haven't received any coins yet with his image on the front, but apparently that will be happening in the, in the near future. Hmm. Uh, you know, so that's one of the things. Um, you know, the welfare state uh, has more of a um, conservative uh, feel to it in Canada than it would in the United States, partly because self-styled conservatives in the United States tend to be more uh, 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 tend to, to hold more to classical liberal principles, uh, the, the principles of individualism, if you will. Mm -hmm. uh, the welfare state has, uh, has more, has a broader, at least historically speaking, has, has a broader uh, base of support in Canada uh, amongst uh, liberals and conservatives and also the socialist New Democratic Party here in Canada as well, which has never governed the country federally, but... Um, but it is currently supporting the current liberal government, and it has governed alone on uh, uh, on the provincial level. Hmm. Yeah, that sounds very different than the conservatives I'm used to knowing here in the states. That's right. Uh, yeah, but I will say that I think I think the American uh, version of conservatism has been more um, influential in Canada over the last twenty years. Hmm. So, in some respects, I think we are becoming more like the United States with respect to our understanding of political ideologies. Hmm. And is that, are, are, is that a happy thing? <laughs> well, a scary I, I, thing? Where, where, <laughs> I, I, th I think it's probably both. You know, okay. I, mean, I mean, there are very few trends that happen in our, in any country that, that could be, you know, um, um, wholly bad or, or wholly good. So I sure. think, you know, there, there are some good things about the United States that I think we have taken on here in Canada. Um, although I will tell you that in some respects, I think we have uh, rejected some of the best features of the British Constitution hmm. uh, and and taken on some of the worst features of the American Constitution. So, <laughs> so you know, we've always been between the United States and Great Britain, but in some mm -hmm. ways we're, we're not in a happy place with respect to that. Yeah, no, I get that. Yeah. So speaking of America, uh, you talk in your book about democracy. Yes. And uh, that word gets thrown around. Uh, we have a political party called the Democrats. Right. What is democracy? Well, democracy, classically defined, is, is the rule of the people. But of course, um, you know, the people never rule directly, except possibly in a, in a kind of direct democracy, such as you might see in, um, um, oh, I think a couple of the Swiss cantons, we find um, direct democracy um, um, in uh, uh, the use of the referendum or the plebiscite, in uh, where people are voting directly on an issue. We find that certainly in the state level, on the state level in the United States. In mm -hmm. my home state of Illinois, I was born in the United States. In my home state of Illinois, every so often you will find referenda uh, questions that appear on the ballots. Uh, we rarely use referenda here in Canada, and when we do. It's almost always divisive. Hmm. Uh, there were referenda. There were there were referenda on conscription uh, during the World Wars here in Canada, and they only uh, exacerbated the divisions between uh, Anglophones and Francophones, between English-speaking Canadians and French-speaking Canadians. So we don't generally have referenda in this country. Switzerland is one country where the referendum is made um, 
uh, generous uses made of the referendum in Switzerland, also in France as well. Uh, um, constitutional change is very likely to be put to the people in, uh, in the, the French Republic. So democracy is direct rule. So what I hear you saying, well, like, yeah, is that right? Yeah, but 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 the way that it's developed is that, is that it's it's indirect rule. So, okay. so representative democracy. So uh, okay. in democracies here uh, in Canada, the United States, Great Britain, France, Germany, etc., um, democratic rule takes place indirectly, and we elect representatives to uh, to to sit in our various parliamentary bodies. And that's the way that democracy works. And so, you know, one of the things that, um, um, that, that, that we should know from, from our histories, you know, that, and I'm not just talking about Canadian history or American history, I'm talking about the larger Western history that goes back some 2,000, 2,500 years, is that most of our political philosophers thought that democracy was a very bad thing. Hmm. They thought that democracy meant that the untutored masses, this is in an era before mass education, that, um, um, that having people who, um, you know, ordinary peasants who might be illiterate, having them rule was a very bad thing, and it was a recipe for, uh, for tyranny over the, over the long term. So Plato and Aristotle and other political philosophers would trace the degeneration of, of constitutions and say that the best, the best form of government was some kind of aristocracy, which literally means ruled the best, and that democracy was was the last stage in the degeneration of a constitution before the uh, before tyranny ar arises. Hmm. So uh, yeah, so democracy was not seen as a very good thing. Plato had a lot of reasons to dislike democracy because it was the democratic assembly in Athens that um, that convicted and executed his mentor Socrates. Uh, so he saw that democracy was a bad thing. Now, the forms of democracy that we have in, in the Western world, I think, are good forms, but that's because democracy has been tempered in some, in some fashion. So we have uh, what is sometimes called liberal democracy, but I think the better term is constitutional democracy. In other words, the people rule, but their representatives rule, and always under the, uh, the rule of law. Mm -hmm. So, you know, the people cannot do anything that they please, but they have to, uh, to, to, to rule under this larger principle of constitutional governance or the rule of law. Yeah, go ahead. Yeah, well, well, well I was going to say the American founders uh, never intended to establish democracy because they were schooled in the classic political philosophers who believed in, in something called a mixed constitution. A mixed constitution would have monarchical, aristocratic, and democratic elements that were supposed to be balanced, a very careful balance. This is what the American founders uh, favored. I think we can say the same thing of Canada's founders almost a century later in the 1860s. Uh, you know, so um, um, the, the, the House of Representatives would be the democratic body, but there were also institutions that would check the democratic rule of the, of the people. Hmm. Um, James Madison uh, never wanted to have uh, a popularly elected president. Hmm. He thought that the president ought to be elected by the Congress, and uh, and that would would prevent a kind of um, um, oh maybe a kind of uh, um, you know a Napoleonic figure mm -hmm. sweeping into power 
slightly anachronistic because Napoleon was a little bit later from the American founders, but uh, but but they certainly lived during that into that era. A Napoleonic figure who would come to power and claim that I have the people behind me, and mm-hmm. therefore I can do whatever I want to. So the founders wanted wanted to to have a, a carefully balanced constitution in which you would have democratic, aristocratic, and monarchical elements carefully balanced and leading to a more durable constitution. So this would be trying to prohibit some kind of celebrity figure who could just wow a mass group of people to take in 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 maybe for some of us we're thinking about like world war ii where you've got these figures hitler mussolini uh, who just wowed a good portion of people yeah that's right and and so what i'm hearing you say is that the founders of the american democracy were were saying okay how do we hold that in check we've got to get some people who really understand politics and government They've yeah. been schooled in this. They're educated. They can have some power too. Yeah. Um, and even I've heard that like George Washington, there was conversation about what we should call him as the yes. leader of what we now call the executive branch. And some right, people right. would say like King, yes, right. which for <laughs> as an American, that's like, no know, way. Yeah. We'd never do that. Yeah. Is that part yeah. of that uh, setup that, that they yeah. were trying to wrestle through? Oh, it was. It, it very much was, yeah. And you had uh, like M- Madison's Virginia plan, which was, um, which which uh, uh, which he favored. You know, we we often think of of James Madison as maybe the key architect of the American Constitution, but that's mm-hmm. because he and Alexander Hamilton and John Jay uh, uh, wrote what what might be called propaganda sheets. You know, the the Federalist, the Federalist mm-hmm. Papers, as we know them nowadays to try to um, uh, to make a case for the states to come on side of this new constitutional federal republic you know but but Madison actually got very little of what he wanted out of the negotiations in hmm. 1787 uh, that that led to the constitution so the con- the American constitution Americans often think that that their founders were were geniuses who set up this carefully balanced system that that that, that couldn't fail. Not true, and the, and the founders themselves never thought of themselves in those terms. Mm-hmm. So you know, if there's any genius in the American Constitution, it lies in Americans themselves who are determined to live under this particular constitutional arrangement. Uh, you know, that accepted the rule of law mm-hmm. and had been schooled in in self governance for at least 150 years beforehand. You know, in their uh, colonial assemblies in Maryland and uh, Virginia, New York, and so forth, I discovered in the in as I was doing genealogical research about twenty years ago that that one of my forebears actually was uh, was sitting in the the Maryland colonial assembly in St. Mary City. Uh, oh wow! And, uh, yeah, in the in the seventeenth century, you know, a man by the name of Captain Cornelius Howard Senior, and uh, this is on my mother's side. My father's side, I'm Greek. Uh, you okay. know, going 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 way back, but on my mother's side, yes, and and you know, and 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 it was it was it was good to know that one of my ancestors was actually trying to to uh, um, to, to to build um, self government in the American mm-hmm. colonies. Oh, that's so cool! Yeah, yeah I've yeah. I've done some genealogical research too. I've tried to figure out where they came across the yeah. pond, so to speak, uh, yeah, and right. most of mine are from Scotland and England, but. But I've yeah. got a handful of lines that were in the uh, 1600s, yeah. 1700s, and I've actually been able to visit some of their gravesides. Uh, yes, yeah. And that's, it's so cool to yeah. you know not only think about American history, but also think about how, for some of us, our families were 
part of that yeah, history. Sure. Yeah, absolutely. That's right. Yeah. So thinking about democracy being in America, we talk about where a constitutional democracy is the word you used, that we're going to submit to this agreed upon set of rules that we're all agreeing to, this contract that we have with each other. And then we made amendments. Yes. Like we have the documents and then we keep making changes. Is that a feature of constitutional democracy as an idea? Yeah, that's right. Yeah. So, um, you know, here in Canada, uh, there's an expression we use that, that our constitution was patriated back in 1982. Because prior to that, we had the British North America Act, which was simply an act of the British Parliament. So even though after 1931, with the Statute of Westminster, we were fully authorized to run our own affairs, we had this, this strange anomaly that for the next half a century, um, our chief constitutional document was simply an act of the British Parliament. So every time we wanted to amend it, we had to go back to the, the Parliament in the United Kingdom and have them vote on an amendment. Now that changed in 1982. So you know, since that time, but but one of the, the one of the things that held up patriation of our constitution is that is that the federal and provincial governments couldn't agree on a formula for amending the constitution. Hmm. So you know, the the uh, a constitution that cannot be amended will likely become so brittle that it will break at some point. Hmm. Um, so, you know, you have to have a constitutional document that is changeable in some, in some way. Uh, but, but typically, we need to have um, a, a qualified majority to change a constitution. So that's what's provided for in the U.S. Constitution. You know, so, so it would have to have, what, two-thirds? There, there's more than one, you know, you, the, you could have a new um what is it like a constitutional assembly or a constitutional mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. constitution convention? Congress, I think yeah. it's the mm-hmm. yeah. That's a constitutional convention has a different meaning here in Canada, so I have to be careful how I use that. But uh, but you know, presumably Americans could decide to uh, establish another constitutional convention that would be fully authorized to scrap the current document and and come up with something new. But for the most part, to change the constitution requires a series of qualified majorities on the, um, the federal and the state levels. And that explains hmm. why the Constitution has been um, amended very few times over the last 230 years. Yeah. So, um, yeah. And so that adaptability yeah. uh, shows that it's, uh, it's capable of learning about yes. how to better itself as yeah. a people. And so we're all adhering to this idea. We're all going to submit to it. But we also right. know that there's going to be new challenges that we face or new ways that we exactly. come together. And so it's adaptable based that's on right. the new yes. needs of the day. Yeah, That's right. Yeah. So that's democracy, which I'm a part of, and I sure. tend, to, tend to like it, I think. Yeah, uh, right, but right. then there's also this other thing that you talk about in your book uh, that kind of comes on the global scene after the concept of a democracy and liberalism. That's socialism. Okay, right. And uh, here in America, that is a very bad word for some people. They throw it around as if it's almost a synonym for, like, demonic. That's right, yeah. Uh, What is socialism? Well, well, you know, and I think I would have to um, disagree with you on that because I think socialism over the last 30 years has become far less of a scare word than it used to be. Okay. You know, you could have somebody like, um, like Bernie Sanders being a serious contender for the Democratic nomination mm. for president, okay. claiming to be a socialist, and, and, and he'll get a lot of young people supporting him. You know? So there are people sitting in Congress, even today, that would call themselves socialists, 
But you know, un, unlike most socialists, it's it's they're not part of a larger movement. They're very much um, they're very much loners. You know, okay. I'm a socialist. You know, but but it isn't as though there's there's uh, an actual political party that would support them. Now there there, there is a socialist party um, that goes back to the the early part of the 20th century, the late part of the, uh, the late 19th century. Their high watermark was the election of 1932, hmm. and that's when they got something like. I'm probably wrong in these figures, but something over a million votes by uh, by Americans, you know, uh, just just after the depression, the Great Depression got mm. started. Uh, but uh, but socialism, I, th- I think it's far less of a scare word now than than, than it was even 30 years ago. Okay. Part of that I think happens to do ha- has has to do with the collapse of communism in the Soviet Union and and other countries, you know. So some of those bad examples of socialism are pretty much gone. Okay. Um, you know, so but 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 it is true. I think that that socialism, um, you know, the 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 allure of socialism is an end to poverty, an end to mm. want. You know, and that's why socialism in so many countries in Canada, uh, increasingly, I think, in the United States, certainly in the United Kingdom under the British Labour Party. There's the uh, Social Democratic Party in Germany. Uh, you know, every country, uh, you know, with the exception of the United States, has a socialist party that uh, that sends members to the parliamentary chamber, and um, um, you know, and and that's what they want to do. They want to help the disadvantaged. They want to represent the industrial working class. They want to 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 protect the poor in some fashion. And that's why socialism is so attractive to so many millions of people around the world. Hmm. So if you if we're thinking about uh, liberalism as right. me my rights don't impinge on me, what yeah. then is socialism? Is it a, yeah. is it collectivism? Is it about us instead of me? Yeah, that's right, and that's that's what you'll have socialists saying. You know, well, this is this is about us rather than just me. You know, so they appeal to people's altruistic sentiments. Mm. You know, my my grandfather was uh, my mother's father was a. Um, um, uh, worked at a General Motors plant, and uh, when I when I was growing up in in Pontiac, Michigan, it's gone now, long gone, you know, mm. with so much of the industrial economy in the American Great Lakes states in the Northeast. But he he, I think he would have called himself a socialist if he had lived in Canada. He would have voted for the New Democratic Party, which is our 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 Democratic Socialist Party here in 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 Canada. And that's exactly what he would have said. You know, this is not about me. It's about it's about us looking out for each other. And that's where um, where where the allure of socialism comes. Socialism revolves around the notion of collective ownership of property. Okay. Collective ownership of property, and socialists are not wrong to to um, value collective ownership of property. But from as as I see it, where they go wrong is assuming that that every collective ownership, every every corporate entity. In which collective ownership is 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 manifested can be um, gathered into one huge community that will then collectively own everything on everyone's behalf. Mm-hmm. So we do have collective ownership. Corporate various corporate um, uh, uh, um, you know focuses of, of ownership. You know every every company you know is mm-hmm. owned by its stro- stockholders in some in some fashion or. You know, when I was growing up, there was a railway that went through my hometown in Illinois called the Chicago and Northwestern, and it said, employee-owned Chicago mm-hmm. and Northwestern. Mm-hmm. You know, that mm-hmm. would be an example of, of, of corporate ownership. 
So, but what, what generally what socialists want to do, at least those that are involved on the national level, they want to try to gather all of those forms of ownership into a single form. And so, for some of us, we're we're hearing that. What's the difference between like socialism and communism and Marxism? Are those all the same thing, David? They are not. No, no. Um, I'm going to leave communism aside for just a moment. But but you know, Marxism. uh, Karl Marx uh, wanted to bring about, and he thought this this was inevitable, that simply through the class struggle, eventually, the proletariat, the industrial working class by dint of superior numbers, would end up overthrowing the, the, um, the bourgeoisie, the, um, the, what we might call the middle class, and they would basically end up instituting or, or establishing a classless society, which would be characterized by this principle, from each according to his ability, to each according to his needs. Hmm. And that is what he saw communism as being that was the end game of 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 this class struggle and he thought that was inevitable it hmm. wasn't simply a utopia that they would have to build but he he thought that simply through the movement of history this would come about almost naturally hmm. yeah. so in marx's vision if i'm understanding you right there there wouldn't be like this stratification of class not anymore uh, wealthy no. poor yeah. That if a person maybe wasn't able to produce, uh, perhaps through um, being uh, under-resourced or disabled yeah. in some regard, right. that the person who was able to produce more would exactly. what, naturally share the resources to create some That's sort right. of equity across That's the That's exactly line. right. And so this, this assumed that, that human beings, that human nature was malleable, that, that it mm. could be shaped in, in various directions. And so, uh, so this is this is the the, the, the huge under under the Soviet Union, under Soviet communism from 1917 up until 1991, there was this effort to create a new Soviet man or a new Soviet person, as it were, who would have different motivations than bourgeois human beings. Mm-hmm. So that's Marxism. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. What's communism? Yeah. Well, communism uh, is supposed to be the end game that Marx believed that history was moving towards. Okay. So characterized by this principle of from each according to his ability to each according to his needs. But in the real world, communism, as, as it was implemented between 1917 and 1991, China is still ostensibly communist, although now I think one would simply have to say it's, a, you know, um, it's an autocracy as a dictatorship. Hmm. Um, you know, it's, uh, um, uh, but, but, but communism as it existed in the real world, um, was, uh, ended up being, uh, a very much a tyrannical system, a totalitarian system, because if you think that human beings can be reshaped to conform to the, uh, um, to the, to the expectations of a particular ideology, then there's nothing out of bounds. A government that's dominated by a particular party, the Communist Party of the Soviet Union, um, there's nothing out of bounds. It, it can interfere in the minutest areas of life. Hmm. That's, that's basically totalitarian. Totalitarian.